All right, show's coming up here in a minute. Ben Standig's going to be on the show today. Greg Wyshynski, uh, the ESPN NHL senior writer, will be on the show as well. We'll talk some Caps Islanders with him and a lot more. Uh, Greg's always one of my favorite guests, so uh, that will be a little bit later on in the show. Just to start off, a reminder that Window Nation's offering 50% off all styles of windows right now, and they're going to defer payments for two years with no interest. You don't have to put any money down, you don't have to pay anything, and you're not going to get interest for two full years. If you've been thinking about new windows, I promise you, you can't go wrong with Window Nation. All of us have had great experiences with Window Nation over the years. Free estimate, so you've got no risk. They'll do a virtual online estimate if you want that. Um, If you allow them into your home to give you the free estimate, they will follow all CDC guidelines. 866 Nation or windownation.com and please tell them that I sent you. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. Alright, a lot to get to today before we get Ben Standig on the show and then after that, Greg Wyshynski will be on the show. This Wall Street Journal story from yesterday. You know, a lot of people think that it's a lot of the stuff we've already heard with respect to the minority owners. No, there's more to this particular story. So I'm going to get to that uh, momentarily. I had Ron Rivera today on the radio show. We're going to play a couple of those cuts um, and comment uh, on them. And I wanted to mention something that Terry McLaurin said in his Zoom conference call yesterday um, about uh, Scott Turner's offense in particular that I thought... Um, was interesting. So we'll get to all of that uh, coming up. Caps Islanders tonight, game two. You know, there's no home ice advantage. Uh, the Caps have lost two before in their Stanley Cup run. They lost the first two to Columbus at home, actually, ended up winning that series. A lot of people have gone back to the 2017-2018 uh, Stanley Cup season. You know, they lost the first two to Columbus. They lost game one to Pittsburgh. Uh, they were down 3-2 to Tampa. They were down one nothing against Vegas in the finals. So they've been in this position before and rallied. Uh, the bad news is no Nick Backstrom uh, tonight in game two. And Anders Lee, as of now, um, was not disciplined for the hit on Backstrom. I didn't think he should be. I don't really know hockey. We'll ask Greg Wyshynski about that later on. Gambling-wise, they're a slight minus-115 favorite tonight. The Caps are. Um, I think they're expecting Braden Holtby uh, to really turn it around after a subpar uh, performance. Uh, the Nats lost again, but Juan Soto went deep uh, yesterday. They've got that series with Baltimore this weekend. How about the Orioles? I mean, what a surprise. At 10-7, and seven, they won, they've won five in a row, and really they're on the verge of winning six in a row because they've got that 5-2 to two lead in the suspended game against the Nats from last Sunday, which they will complete tonight um, before uh, the three-game set. Uh, with the Nats. So if they win that, they've actually got a six-game winning streak uh, heading into the series uh, with the Nationals. Um, it's been impressive uh, with the Orioles, not so much with the Nats. They get Strasburg back tonight, and I don't know if you guys caught this last night, but Steven Strasburg was thrown out of the stadium in the game yesterday at City Field in New York. He was sitting in the lower level watching the game, in section 121, socially distanced from anybody else. 
He was not happy with the strike zone that umpire Carlos Torres had for Austin Voth, who was pitching. And on a 2-2 pitch that hit the outside corner that uh, Carlos Torres called as a ball, Strasburg went off. And with no fans in the stands, Torres heard it all. Um, uh, Strasburg screamed, you're with an expletive brutal. And he got tossed. Torres turned around, saw it was Strasburg, and tossed him out of the park. Dave Martinez said, I thought the umpire threw me out of the game, so I was kind of heated up. Uh, It was Strauss who got thrown out as a fan. He goes, I love Steven. I can't tell you what he said, but I love him. Uh, Man, you know, with Strasburg, what's so interesting about him, Steven Strasburg in the biggest moments here over the last several years has come up the biggest. He's been a clutch performer, an incredible clutch performer. I mean, certainly, you know, no better clutch performance uh, than the one that we saw in game six of the World Series. I mean, facing elimination, down three games to two, having lost three in a row at home. There was sort of the expectation, even with Strasburg and Scherzer, you know, scheduled for games six and seven, that Houston was back home. They had all the momentum. Uh, They were, you know, going to close the Nats out in game six. And Strasburg puts together an all-time gem, similar to, to what he did, you know, at Wrigley against the Cubs a few years ago in the postseason in that game that he nearly didn't pitch because he wasn't feeling well. And then he came through, and that seemed to be almost, you know, a career-defining win for him and maybe a career-changing win for him in terms of the perception of him as a clutch pitcher. But remember, game six last year didn't start well. He was tipping his pitches. Paul Menhart came out, uh, you know, and let him know what he was doing. And he allowed two runs on two hits in the first And then it was lights out. He takes it all the way into the ninth inning, allowing basically nothing over the final seven and two-thirds or whatever it was. Um, He uh, was in pressure spots. I remember a two-on, two-out jam. Uh, You know, he's got Carlos Correa up, and he strikes him out, uh, strikes Altuve out in a big spot, um, gets Michael Brantley out in a big spot. It was one of the great performances and clutch performances we've ever seen and it's just interesting about Strasburg about how the whole his whole persona the whole narrative on him has changed you know he was considered to be delicate as Tony always referred to him as an orchid and yet you know uh in the postseason Last year, he became the first pitcher to ever go 5-0 and in one postseason, um, and he had a 1.98 ERA um, in October uh, last year. I mean, incredible. Remember, it started with a relief appearance um, as well. So clutch uh, performer, really, I think, much more of an intense competitor than most people have given, given him credit for over the years, and he got tossed from a game that he wasn't even – uh, pitching in. By the way, I'm just looking at something um, on Strasburg that his you know playoff ERA second all time to Sandy Koufax. That's amazing. Like Steven Steven Strasburg, you can mention his name in the same breath with Sandy Koufax. And last year's Game Six, you know World Series performance on the road was unbelievable. Uh, anyway. Um, Wanted to mention one other thing, too, before we get to uh, a couple of things that Ron Rivera said and the Wall Street Journal story and a couple of things from Terry McLaurin. 
Last night or yesterday afternoon, the San Antonio Spurs were eliminated uh, from the postseason. The Spurs' consecutive playoff season streak came to an end. 22 consecutive seasons they made the playoffs. It's tied for the longest streak in NBA history, um, and it came to an end yesterday. It, it, I mean, it's going to be a postseason, and I know it's a weird postseason because it's going to take place in August and September, uh, maybe even into early October. Um, but no San Antonio since the 96 97 season. That's how long it's been since uh, we've had uh, the Spurs uh, out of the playoffs. Um, What an incredible run when you think about it. One of the great all-time team sports runs in history. Since 1997, Greg Popovich's Spurs have won five titles, been in the NBA Finals six times, made the postseason 22 consecutive years. He's been a three-time coach of the year. They've had 18 seasons, and it was 18 consecutive seasons with 50-plus wins. The overall winning percentage during the last 22 years is 690. It's just one of the great sports team runs of all time. They've had great players, Hall of Fame players, but they've really been the embodiment of team because they haven't always had the best player in the league or even, you know, the best collection of talent in the league. But they have been for a long period of time in many of those years the best team, the smartest team, the classiest team in the league. Um, An incredible run. I mean, something to acknowledge. Uh, 22 consecutive years of playoffs uh, comes to an end uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. I I saw something um, on Twitter um, yesterday that the last time the Spurs didn't make the playoffs, and this will sort of put it in perspective, 1997, Michael Jordan, Tim Hardaway, Grant Hill, Carl Malone, and Hakeem Olajuwon was your NBA all-first team group. Jordan, Olajuwon, Carl Malone, Tim Hardaway, and Grant Hill. I mean, it fe- feels like those guys haven't played in decades. Well, it's true, actually. Um, but that was the last time the Spurs weren't relevant. You know, it's interesting about that franchise, an ABA franchise that was part of the NBA-ABA uh, merger in 1976. When they first came into the NBA, they were an Eastern Conference team. Uh, and they competed with the Washington Bullets in two memorable playoff series, both of which the Bullets won. They played uh, the Spurs in the second round in the conference semifinals in the 78 playoffs, the year that the Bullets went on to win the uh, title. And then in 79, in an all-time series in the Eastern Conference Finals, the Bullets came from 3-1 down to beat the Spurs in seven games. The seventh and deciding game played at the Capitol Center in one of the more raucous environments that an NBA team has ever had in this town. And Bobby Dandridge hit a baseline 16-footer to win it for them in overtime. Uh, That advanced the Bullets to the NBA Finals for the second consecutive year against Seattle. It was that year that they lost to Seattle. Um, But the Bullets and the Spurs 
had something going there. And then the Spurs moved to the Western Conference where with artists Gilmore and George Gervin and Silas and, you know, the the uh, Larry Keenan and some of the other players, Billy Paltz, um, and then a couple of the other players that came along a little bit later, they had a big run. They never made it to the NBA Finals um, with those Gervin teams, but they were in the Western Conference Finals a couple of times against the Lakers, and they had made it to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Bullets in 79. If you talk to a San Antonio Spur fan, a longtime fan that remembers those years, they say one of the worst losses in history was that loss to the Bullets. They felt like they were the better team. They felt like the refereeing took it away from them late in the game. There's a famous incident in that seventh and deciding game. The Bullets were down 10 points in the fourth quarter and the lights in the Capitol Center went out. Uh, it took it delayed the game, and then when the lights came back on, the Spurs had lost all their mojo. Um, Doug Moe was the coach. A lot of Spurs writers and fans still think that they were screwed out of that Eastern Conference Finals um, Game 7. And George Gervin, one of the all-time great players, the Iceman, never made it to an NBA Finals. He was close, and that was probably the closest he got. They had some very competitive series with the Lakers when they were in the West, but he never got to the NBA Finals with uh, teams that were really good. And then there was a, you know, there was a stretch there where the Spurs struggled and then came uh, David Robinson and Tim Duncan and the 22-year run of being one of the winningest and most successful franchises in all of sport. All right, a uh, quick word from Indochino, then we're going to get to this Wall Street Journal story and more. All right, let's get to this Wall Street Journal story. Uh, We'll touch on something Terry McLaurin said as well, and you'll hear a couple of the Ron Rivera bites um, from my uh, interview with him earlier this morning. But I want to get to this journal story that dropped yesterday afternoon titled, Minority Owners Pressure Dan Snyder to Sell Washington's NFL Team. Uh, The minority partners, the story reads, of Washington's NFL team are pressuring Dan Snyder to sell the franchise. This, according to people familiar with the matter, amid a growing fight inside a team facing controversy on multiple fronts. Mr. Snyder, the team's 55-year-old billionaire owner, has no intention to sell his majority stake in the team. A recent legal filing by Mr. Snyder suggests that at least one of the minority partners has attempted to leak defamatory information against him. Uh, I'll get into the rest of the story, but I'll stop there because um, there are a couple of things about this story that you learn, the first of which is they do want him to sell and that he's got no intention of selling. Now, some people will say, well, that's not really an update. Um, It's not necessarily an update to what we heard a few months ago, but it is an indication that they want him to sell with them. This was not necessarily the story three months ago. It was just that they were selling their minority shares. They want him to sell his shares too. I'll get into the reasons why in a moment. Now, this reference to Dwight Schar, 
one of the minority partners who's attempted to leak defamatory information against him is what we've been talking about here periodically during the week. It goes back to that um, motion for discovery filed in a uh, court in Virginia by Dan and his attorney against a Mary Ellen Blair, who was an executive assistant to Snyder for, you know, uh, upwards of four years uh, with the Redskins, um, accusing her of being funded by somebody to spread false rumors about Snyder. You know, those were the rumors with him tied to Jeffrey Epstein, tied to sex trafficking, tied to bribing NFL referees, etc. Now, they are going after here, as we've talked about all week long, uh, in an incredible twist to this story. They believe that this Mary Ellen Blair was underwritten by potentially one of the minority partners, Dwight Shar which is amazing. Let me read from the story. Um, uh, Continuing. The team's minority owners, FedEx Corporation CEO Fred Smith, Black Diamond Capital Chairman Robert Rothman, and NVR Incorporated Board Chairman Dwight Schar own approximately 40% of the team. They've hired an investment firm to sell their interest in the franchise, formerly known as the Redskins. Those same stakes would become more valuable if the entire team, which would likely be worth several billion dollars, were to be sold. So what's the, the journal story um, lays out, and even in more detail uh, during uh, throughout the rest of the story, is that with Dan Snyder in the organization, the minority shares aren't worth market value or what they believe to be market value. Now, again, part of that may be that typically when you buy a minority interest in something, you want a path towards majority ownership. Now, that isn't necessarily the case in the NFL. The opportunity to buy in and even be a minority owner in an NFL team is very rare. And and people will take that opportunity even without an obvious path to majority ownership. Now, the journal writes about this, saying that sales of minority stakes typically come at a significant discount if they don't provide a path to ultimate control of the team, which is what I just said. If the team were to go up for sale, the limited partners or whoever purchases them would would have a right of first refusal, one of the people said. um, So it then gets into basically that these... Uh, minority owners can't find people interested in the team, and it spells it out as A, because Snyder's involved in it, and B, because they don't have a path to taking Snyder out. And that's the new portion of this story. There is the fact that they are pressuring him to sell now, just not trying to sell on their own, which they have um, used uh, and they're using an investment bank to try to sell their shares. But the learning that their shares aren't worth market value because he's still in the organization, he doesn't want to sell, and he doesn't want to give anybody the path to majority ownership. Now, a lot of this has to do with him. They want out because they don't want to have they don't want anything to do with him. And it's probably one of the reasons that the market for minority owner uh, prospects is limited as well, because they'll buy in, but only if they've got a path to majority ownership. They don't want to work in his organization either. Uh, the issues um, uh, the journal uh, writes. Uh, then, then we get to the. Um, 
uh, the more recent stuff with with Shar and the misinformation campaign. The tensions between the parties have grown more severe in recent weeks. This, the journal article again. While the minority partners privately look to push Mr. Snyder into selling, a lawsuit filed by Mr. Snyder suggests that one of the minority partners is behind a plot to leak defamatory information about him. In Monday, the, in a Monday filing in federal district court in Alexandria, Virginia, Mr. Snyder requested access to documents from a former executive assistant for the team, Mary Ellen Blair, as part of a defamation case he filed in India against an Indian media company, MEA Worldwide, which Mr. Snyder says libeled him in July articles that have since been taken down. The filing refers to an unnamed financial benefactor that aided Miss Blair and says she had been seeking to spread damaging information about Mr. Snyder. Now, we've talked about this, but the story um, writes about it. Without naming any of the limited partners directly, the filing strongly implies that one of the limited partners could be involved in the effort to defame Mr. Snyder. Mr. Shar's daughter, Tracy, is on the board of Comstock, the real estate company that owns the building where Miss Blair lives, and Mr. Snyder's filing says Miss Blair has lived above her means at the property. The filing petitions discovery from Comstock to shed light on Blair's motive for seeking to defame Snyder and the nature of her ties to other participants in the same scheme. This is all unbelievable. If true. If true. So, this story indicates, one, that the minority owners not only want to sell, but now they want Dan to sell as well. Why? Because they can't find buddy, find anybody to give them market value for their shares, for their equity position, with Dan still there and without a path to majority ownership. Now, if Dan were a normal owner, they would probably be able to find people to buy their minority shares to become a part of an NFL team as even a minority owner. It's that sexy to be a minority NFL owner. It's not your typical business where you're buying in to eventually control it and run it. I'm sure a lot of the prospects would love to control it and run it and own it and make and be the decision maker, but you know that isn't necessarily the way it works. David Tepper bought in as a minority owner in the Carolina Panthers. Ultimately, he became the owner, but when he bought in as a minority owner, there wasn't necessarily a path to majority ownership. That happened when Jerry Richardson was forced out because of the um, the harassment uh, allegations. Um, so they want him to sell. They're having trouble selling their shares at market value, which is why they want him to sell, because if he does sell, this thing will be worth a ton of money. And that's where I just want to make a few uh, comments about this story. The Washington football franchise, don't mistake this, is worth much more without Dan Snyder in it than with him in it. And that's what the minority owners really understand. That's what the market understands. Remember that this area, the demographics of this market, the nature of this market from a corporate revenue standpoint with you know, the federal government and all the companies that call on the federal government and the defense industry and all the companies that, that call on the Pentagon, you know, they seem to be recession-proof, always have been. 
that creates huge corporate revenue, corporate sponsorship opportunity that's consistent in this market. The military aspect of this market. The possibility of a new stadium down the road is an attractive possibility. A fan base that could be revived if Snyder is gone. Future television contracts um, you know, that are coming up with the NFL Uh, The legalization of sports betting, all of this leads to this is a very valuable franchise. It's a very valuable franchise. If Snyder were to sell this team in conjunction with his minority owners, it would be worth the largest amount ever paid for a franchise in North America. I'm not saying that the Cowboys wouldn't sell for more. I'm just saying if they were the next team to sell, it would be the largest sale if Snyder was out in the history of sports in North America. Let's face it, and I talked about this this morning on the radio show, this owner has alienated this fan base like few other owners have in the history of sports. You know, in the fan base, we all know this, that he alienated, is one of the most passionate, was one of the most passionate in sports when he purchased the team in 1999. No exaggeration, this fan base at one point at one point, was one of the most fervid and intense in sports. And yet it it has eroded over two decades. And the erosion and the acceleration of that erosion over the last few years is remarkable. It is really hard to consider how much he has sucked the passion and the uh, fanaticism out of a large group of diehards who, who were you know, totally invested in this franchise. If you had told anyone in 1999 that the Washington Redskins would become one of the worst franchises in sports, with much of the fan base becoming completely disinterested in the team, you would have been checked in to a mental institution. But it happened. We we all witnessed it. With that said, though, the team is still an incredible opportunity if it can be purchased without him in it. The Wall Street Journal story indicates the minority minority ownership is having issues trying to convince interested parties in buying with Snyder remaining in control. And they can't get Snyder to sell. He doesn't want to sell. And the discovery motion in court reflects that Snyder's really angry with Dwight Schar more likely than not, one of the limited partners. So that may have him digging his heels in even further. Additionally, the Post story from a few weeks ago didn't implicate Snyder. You know, remember, the you, you've got to get three-fourths of a vote of the other owners to force somebody out. That story as a standalone didn't implicate him directly. It certainly imp- implicated him as the leader of an organization that had a toxic culture. We all understand that. But it's not enough for Roger Goodell to go to the other 31 owners and say, hey, let's vote him out even though they don't like him and they'd like and they're embarrassed by the situation in DC and they want a competent owner here because it's an important city for them. It's an important market for them. Now, I I've mentioned this several times, but they blew their opportunity for that post story to have carried more weight. The cheerleading scandal story reported by the New York Times in twenty eight in twenty eighteen the league should have come down hard on the team. They should have punished the team. They should have fined the team, taken a draft choice away from the team, and warned the owner, don't embarrass us again. 
We've had it with you. One more of these things, and you are in deep trouble. And that way, the post story, if it was you know put together in aggregate with the cheerleading scandal, could have led to Goodell asking for a vote from the other 31 owners to get three-fourths of the vote to force him out. But they didn't do anything with the cheerleading scandal. They did nothing. So now it's like, who knows? I mean, Beth Wilkinson is investigating, um, you know, after the Post story. Maybe it will unearth more negatives. Who knows? Um, Maybe there's more coming, you know, on this stuff. Uh, But uh, right now, uh, it's it, it it would appear that his heels are dug in a little bit, maybe, um, and they still don't have enough on him to force him to sell. And these three minority owners, um, I don't know what their end game is in all of this because if they really did, if Dwight Shar really is behind uh, the internet rumors and the misinformation campaign on Snyder that 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 pre that that uh, that led up to the post story. I mean, he's not helping the value of the franchise with that, is he? Or is maybe the the point to try to get, was the point to try to get the other thirty one owners to say, "All right, enough of this guy. Let's get him out." It is a fascinating story, and a story that I know many of you don't you know necessarily put side by side with games and the roster and the football decisions. But this is the owner, and this is the owner. In a, in a in a squabble with his minority owners, um, with you know maybe perhaps the prospect of it leading to an eventual sale. Who knows? All right. Anyway, uh, I want to get to Ron Rivera here real quickly. He joined me on radio this morning. You can hear the whole interview at theteam980.com, or you can download the Team 980 app and listen to the whole interview uh, with Rivera today. But I want to play two cuts for you specifically. The first one, um, I asked him, I said, you know, tomorrow night, meaning tomorrow, actually it would have been tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow afternoon would have been your first preseason game against the Titans had the NFL kept the preseason schedule. Uh, based on, you know, what you've seen, who would have started at quarterback? And he said this. Oh, um, it would have been Dwayne. It would have been Dwayne. You know, and again, he's he's in a competition. You know, the next week would have probably been Kyle, and we'll go from there. You know, again, we're 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 not giving anything to anybody. Everything's going to be earned, and 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 that's one of the things that we talked about. He knows that's how I feel about it, and he's practicing like it. He is very competitive in practice. Dwayne's done an outstanding job, um, and again, you know, he's got to continue to to show that 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 he he deserves the opportunity. So the big takeaway for me from that is this. Dwayne Haskins is the starting quarterback. It's his job to lose. He answered Dwayne Haskins too quickly to my question. Um, And then obviously there was a sense of keeping this um, competition discussion going, which I think he feels is very healthy for Dwayne. But he answered the question very quickly, and then he said, well, and then Kyle Smith would have gotten the start next week, and then as far as the Eagles game, etc. Bottom line is it's Dwayne Haskins' job to lose. I think we knew that already. I'm not, you know, trying to say that this was some sort of big reveal, um, but the encouraging words from him about Dwayne in recent weeks and various interviews, the fact that if tomorrow were the first preseason game, Dwayne would get the start. It's his job to lose. Uh, I don't think there's any other way to look at it. Here was the other cut from uh, Ron Rivera uh, during the interview with me earlier this morning on 980. I asked him about the players that were. 
under the radar that maybe we as fans aren't necessarily expecting to be big contributors? You know, I think I phrased it in, who are your sleepers right now? Who do you guys really like that would surprise us? Here was his answer. I'll give you a couple. Kevin Pierre-Lewis is a linebacker we signed as a free agent. Um, he's come in and, 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 and he's, he's been, you know, as advertised in terms of he's showing us how explosive he is. Um, he's showing us his, you know, his ability to, 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 to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, he's been exciting to watch. Troy Apke is a, a young safety who's done a couple of really nice things that, that, that gets your attention. You know, when you sit there and you watch him, you know, run around and, you know, and show his athleticism. Yeah, but he's got a long way to go. Uh, Sadiq Charles has, has, has been impressive as a, as a young rookie. He seems to just kind of pick things up, and, you know, those things don't seem to, to, to bother him, that, you know, that now all of a sudden you know, he's, in, he's in a position where, you know, he's, he's, he's got a chance to compete. So, so that's been, a, you know, a, a, another real positive for us. Um, let's see, um, along the, uh, the, the wide receiver group, I mean, there's, there's been a couple of these young guys that have really stood out that have, you know, been impressive to watch. Um, I think Cam Sims, Stephen Sims, you know, both those guys are, are really competitive guys, and, and they've done a nice job. And you know, they catch your attention, um, you know, both because they, they, they have a unique skill set that, that fits what we want to do, and that's something that's been really cool. And one guy that, you know, I want to tell everybody, don't overlook is Montez Sweat. I, I know we have Chase, and Chase is going to be a dynamic player, but, you know, Montez had a lot of uh, hype last year, and, 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 and when he came in, and, and, and he's, been, he's been pretty solid. So, We've got some real interesting guys, some guys that are a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, we're, we're in the process of, of trying to build this, um, and it is a process, and it's going to take some time, and, and, and we've got a ways to go. And, and that's the thing that I think, I, you know, I, I, again, I, I said before, I just hope everybody understands that. Be patient with us. Be out there cheering for us, and uh, I, I get it. You'll boo us once in a while, but just remember, we're your team. They love themselves some Kevin Pierre-Lewis, KPL. We have heard now KPL's name mentioned multiple times out of the mouths of Ron Rivera, Jack Del Rio, and others. This seemed to be a throwaway signing in free agency. This guy's been primarily a special teams player, but his name has been mentioned, and they've mentioned it in brief, uh, you know, as an acronym, KPL. You know, like everybody should know who KPL is. Uh, this is one of those guys that obviously they like a lot um, and, a, and a name to keep um, an eye on. And, and Apke's name's been mentioned before, too. Apke can really run uh, at safety. I liked what he said about Sadiq Charles and Cam Sims and Steven Sims, and I really liked what he said about Montez Sweat. Most of you know I was really high on him before last year's, uh, before the 2019 uh, uh, draft. Um, I think we saw a guy that wasn't totally comfortable all the time last year uh, in that defensive scheme, but as a 4-3 D end, uh, I think we're going to see uh, a breakout year potentially from Montez Sweat. One more thing before we get to Ben Standing. Terry McLaurin did a um, conference, a Zoom conference call and was asked about the offense. And I'm going to read you this one part of his answer because we've all wondered, okay, well, what's Scott Turner's offense going to be like? I'm guessing it's going to be Norv's offense, but I think we got clarification or uh, or validation, confirmation, if you will, that it is going to be Norv's off, uh, offense. Because Terry McLaurin said the following, I feel like when you're on offense, you should be dictating tempo. You should decide when you guys get up to the line, when you're snapping the play, when you're calling audibles, running motions, things like that. I feel like play action on first downs, running on downs, you feel like you maybe shouldn't be running on. It's just 
list some things that offensive coordinator Scott Turner does a great thing on. The versatility and unpredictability, and then he goes on and on. Look, North Turner, no matter what you thought of him as a head coach here or anywhere else, he was a very, very high-level offensive coordinator. And the hallmark of Norv was to run it when you thought they were going to throw when the defense thought you were going to throw it and to throw it when you when the defense thought you were going to run it. I can remember countless times, third and seven, here's a pitch sweep to our third down back. You know, maybe Brian Mitchell in some of those games in the 90s. And all of a sudden, against nickel defense or against dime defense, there's plenty of running room, and they pick up the seven yards on a run. Norv was great on throwing first down play action and taking shots, you know, deeper shots. Uh, Nobody uh, that watched Norv Turner's teams in the 90s that he coached here could say that he wasn't prepared for that opening drive of the game. He always had teams off balance. Now, was he a great head coach? No. Was he a really good offensive mind and play caller? Absolutely. Norv, in every stop, if he had enough talent, and sometimes even when he didn't have great talent, he was able to keep defenses thinking, keep them off balance, keep them wondering what was coming next. Um, And I think that's what Scott's going to be. And if that's the case, I think it's a perfect fit for Dwayne Haskins. I also think it's really important that they get a tight end uh, that can catch the ball. Um, Anyway, uh, let's get to Ben Standig right after uh, I tell you about Manscaped. Uh, If you guys are trying to get that post-quarantine body ready, uh, get it Manscaped up too, all right? Manscaped is dedicated to helping you with your full body grooming game. They have forever changed the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the Essential Lawnmower 3.0 waterproof, cordless body trimmer, and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Guys, if you're looking for something to help you out with a chest shave or shaves in other areas, Seriously, I want you to consider Manscaped. Inside the perfect package, you're going to find the Manscaped Crop Preserver. It's an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer because you know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing your bathing suit all day. You'll find the Crop Reviver, a below-the-belt toner that's designed to give you a pep in your step and keep you smelling great. If you subscribe to this perfect package, you'll get a new blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. So they're into automatic replenishment. So you don't have to worry about reordering. And for a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts, the shed travel bag and the patented high performance reduced chafing manscaped boxer briefs. Here's what you do. You go to manscaped.com. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use code THEATHLETIC20. Again, use the code THEATHLETIC20. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs as well. Go to manscaped.com today and use the code THEATHLETIC20. All right, let's talk uh, some Washington football team with our good friend Ben Standig from The Athletic. Uh, Follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standig. Also, um, still a very good opportunity, as I've been encouraging all of you to subscribe to The Athletic. You get a discount right now by signing up. 
and it's totally worth it as we approach football season in particular. And I think, uh, Ben, a football season right now on August 14th that has a pretty good chance. We know how quickly things have changed in our world. Um, you know, in, in 30 days might as well be a year. But right now, based on the early COVID-19 you know, results, I think there's a pretty good chance we're certainly going to get this season started on time. Do you agree? It feels like we're heading in that direction. I mean, there hasn't been the follies we've seen in like with baseball. Um, now, granted, well, look, at this point, these teams have been together enough. Uh, so it's not like they haven't been, you know, obviously the, the, the Washington hasn't put on pads yet. They only got on helmets Thursday for the first time. But, yeah, I mean, they're around each other. So, yeah, we haven't we haven't seen anything. You know, they've only had, I say only, they've had one player test or he go, go into the protocol situation for, for COVID. And, yeah, there hasn't been some outbreak on any of these other teams yet. So, you know, for, for the moment, it feels like things are headed in a, in a reasonable direction, uh, you know, I've always sort of been of the opinion that they're gonna it's gonna start the finish or you know the interruptions along the way and the finish is the question but so far uh, so good yeah um, so I had Ron Rivera on the show on the radio show this morning and I talked a little bit about that um, in the open of the show before bringing you on um, you, you know you get you get a chance to participate in those Zoom conference calls uh, with him um, a lot. Uh, do you have any sense um, about how comfortable he is with everything? I mean, I think you may have asked him the question, you know, a couple of weeks ago about does he have any regrets? And um, But how comfortable do you think he is as we are now a month away from the start of the season about having a team that can compete this year? Well, you know, a lot. It, it's not like a lot of the time he talks, he's talking about, contending or the playoffs or winning and losing or it's it's very much grounded in we're starting something new here that the it's about the culture and doing things the right way he's emphasizing you know in, in terms of training camp he's emphasizing moving you know quicker you know in and out of, of uh, drills and, and 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 things like that so you know really does feel like he's he's focusing on the basics of, of, of everything. And obviously, yes, there's some cliche element to that, but my take has been, and maybe this is in part because of the fact that we didn't have all these off-season workouts and he's got a young team and he's a new staff, but that it really is just about implementing the plan he wants to put in, both in terms of a playbook, but also a mindset, a mentality, what that what he's going to demand of these guys. So I think he's comfortable in, in, in that sense. Beyond that, I think he probably, you know, would admit on some level that there's a lot, there's so many unknowns. I mean, it's almost impossible to point to anything on the offense and feel particularly comfortable with it, you know, in terms of units. And, uh, you know, defense has obviously, you know, still has questions regardless of the fact that the defensive line is good. So I think he seems to be somewhat of a realist, you know, in, in terms of, you know, he wants to win, obviously, right away, and I'm sure he's hopeful. But I don't, I'm getting more of the sense he's focusing on, you know, like I said, putting it, you know, laying down the foundation of what he wants to do more than thinking if we, you know, if we hustle here, we can make the playoffs. Um, you did um, a, a column the other day that I thought was really, uh, it was really good. It was creative too. It was basically mixing Ron Rivera's 
answers to a lot of different uh, questions and subjects with um, league sources who would comment, you know, anonymously on the same things, um, primarily players. Uh, again, I would urge everybody to subscribe to The Athletic so you could read this in, in its, its entirety. What stood out to you from that, that column, that story that you wrote two days ago about league source compared to, you know, what Ron had to say about a lot of the players? Yeah, and it was also, you know, we, we have all these Zoom calls with the assistant coaches and some of the players. Sure. And so, you know, it's trying to figure out how to, how to you know, turn lemons in, into lemonades on some level because these Zoom calls are really not that exciting for most of us. And certainly it's different when some, some news outlets, you know, they've got to churn out multiple articles in the day and it's really just about getting something up quick. And for the athletic, you know, we're trying to be, be creative, be unique, not be – not putting out the same stuff, and when you have the only same material that everybody else does, it becomes a, a little more of a challenge. So this was a way to sort of use this information that we have while simultaneously trying to add more um, more to it. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, obviously the, the, some of the league source stuff is interesting. I also got used a little bit more for my Jack Del Rio interview from a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, I thought, you know, I guess specifically, I think the defensive line part was 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 probably the most interesting to me in in the John Allen and Deron Payne because and we may have talked about this on a previous time I was on, but it feels like Jonathan Allen between those two is the one who gets more of the attention. Um, he was the first one here. He generates more sacks, which tends to be the thing that people gravitate towards. But I think when you talk to people around the league, the real interest, and and maybe even with the team to some degree. The real interest is this Deron Payne, which isn't to say that Jonathan Allen is a you know, poor player or that he's underachieved. Not not at all, but just that he's totally solid. He he just may lack the upside of some of the other guys out there. And when I talked to Del Rio a, a couple weeks ago, um, the question I posed was, "Whose tape did you enjoy watching the most as you were getting to learn the players?" Deron Payne was the first one he mentioned for reasons that basically he thought that the um, that they would be able to get more out of him than the previous um, coaching staff did based on the playing. And, you know, the the sourcing that I did sort of had the, essentially had the same vibe that the, 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 the two-gap uh, playing under Jim Tomasula didn't really give these guys, and maybe Payne in particular, the opportunity to really use their athleticism, uh, their power, to make plays, you know, in, you know, up the field, so to speak. So, yeah, I think that contrast is interesting, and it'll it'll will, it'll be fun to see. You know, does Payne make the leap, and and if he does, it could be a pretty significant one in terms of in terms of the league. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and but by the same token, I think Allen is going to see so many more one-on-one opportunities now when you have Case Young and Montez Sweat, you know, all, on the outside. I mean, you know, who, who who's worrying about Jonathan Allen at this point, right? To some degree. So, you know, it, it, this is why this whole line is so fascinating because. I think some people took it as like sort of a knock on Allen. I don't think that it was. I, I just think it said like he's good. He just may not be great. And there are other other guys though on the line that could be great. And that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, I was hoping um, that that would be part of your answer because if it wasn't, I was going to get to it on Deron Payne because I I've really been 
enamored with him too, you know, watching him um, in in his first uh, first two seasons, I think his upside is just significantly higher than any of their other interior linemen. And I love Allen and I love Ioannidis. And actually, Ioannidis um, is really intriguing too. But Payne is just so explosive and physically freakish in so many ways. And You know, maybe it's part that I'm excited about an interior defensive lineman that could dominate potentially. And and you you talked about the benefit that Allen will have with Young and Sweat. Everybody's going to benefit if you've got two edge rushers that are really explosive, quick twitch. You know, and then if you throw pain in the middle and pain develops into you know, what a lot of people think he can develop into, that's where now you can win games with just one side of the ball. You know, you can all of a sudden have a secondary that may be average talent-wise that all of a sudden looks great because your front four, your front seven maybe, if you add some of the backers with some of the speed that they have, um, you can really be a factor. You can be a competitive team. I mean, I love Denver, you know, uh, and Chubb and and Miller and some of the things they've had. And without a quarterback, they haven't been able to really get over the top. And that, that you know, they, they still need the quarterback. And, and we know that as NFL fans. But I think the fans haven't understood the last two years what Deron Payne's talent is and how other people around the league see it. He is potentially the most talented interior defensive lineman they've had here in forever. You know, unless you thought Albert Hainsworth was, you know, gifted, which he was, but it doesn't matter with him after he got the contract. If Payne loves football and he's committed, he has a chance more than the other two to become a top, you know, three to five player at his position in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think from a potential standpoint, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, it's interesting. We have collectively, you know, really praised this defensive line, but not for what they've accomplished, but for what they right. could accomplish. And, you know, Chase Young hasn't even taken a snap yet, um, but that's that's partly why. And it is fair to note, I think, two things. One, they couldn't stop the run at all last year, despite the fact having these guys. And that's not just on them. Part of the plan with Kamasula was these guys take on the blockers and then the linebackers and the and the bat and the you know safeties you know fill in and, and, and pick up the run and uh, you know I think there's a there were questions for sure about how good their linebackers were last year and I think there's still some of those questions this year though they have some new pieces there so we'll see but I think that's one and then the other thing with Payne specifically that the source sort of uh, said was you know th- this new setup means he's going to be moving a lot more and he's got to make sure he's in the best. You know the best shape possible, right. um, and you know I think I think that's going to be such a unique, interesting thing. You know, it feels like we watch all these players do nothing but workout videos. If you're on social media, obviously Chase Young, we see it constantly. We saw Haskins throwing to receivers um, all off season, but you know we're not really watching all of these guys do this. And there is a big difference, of course, between doing some workouts and being in game shape. They've got a month to get there. But yeah, I mean, well, I think that's going to be one of the interesting things whenever we get out the training campus, the weather allows, um, is to see as best we can, you know, what kind of what kind of shape these guys are in, and so maybe for him in particular, it's going to be something to keep an eye on. Not questioning that it that it won't be there, but just that that's one of the things that, that the source said to keep an, keep the thought on for him, and then specifically, yeah, you know, I just think for all these guys, I think that's going to be such a fascinating aspect uh, of this weird offseason. Did you listen to Rivera with me this morning? 
I did. Very good interview, as always. So did you were, – were you also struck by the consistency on him, Del Rio, et cetera, mentioning Kevin Pierre-Lewis, almost the first thing that comes to their mind when they start thinking about, you know, the linebackers that they have and even, you know, the the overall defense? Yeah, 100%. I, I uh, immediately uh, – that was my immediate thought because Del Rio – I don't remember the exact question when he was asked. This was to not just to me, but this was to a group um, uh, interview some time ago. And he said, when talking about the linebackers, he said, and by the way, don't forget about Kevin Pierre-Lewis. People are probably not talking about him enough. Okay, cool. Good to note. Appreciate that. But I still suspect that most people have gone around still focusing on Cole Holcomb, Thomas Davis, John Bostic, you know, et cetera. And now Rivera, the first name you ask him for a sleeper, first name he gives you is him. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, again, we have, you know, none of us have seen him play here at all or do anything. So it's hard to just think about it in those terms. And it's not like he was like some flashy college kid coming in or, or some you know, notable free agent. He was, oh, okay, this guy. I don't he's know. A, he's, he's a special he's a teams boy. guy primarily and has been. Right, right. I remember talking to. Um, somebody during the offseason after that, right around the time they made that move, and said that, you know, he actually wasn't that bad when he played late in the season. But, you know, I mean, uh, as somebody who covered Andre Blatch for the Wizards when Blatch would kick, would kick butt for the last 10 games of the season, I'm always leery of guys who do well late in the year for bad teams. So I was like, okay, sure, I'm, I'm not doubting it, but let me let me see it. But, yes, now we have two two guys, the two the two guys that, we, that, that matter the most, praising him. And, it, and it's at a position – where there's major uncertainty. I mean, I don't think I, I don't think anybody could definitively say that any of these linebackers will be starting. We can maybe assume Cole Holcomb, Thomas Davis, John Bostic, but I don't think it's like a lock the way we would be with some other positions. So, but yeah, the, the fact that he keeps getting mentioned is definitely something too that we should all be keeping an eye on. Yeah, they don't even refer to him as Kevin Pierre-Lewis. It's KPL, like we all should know who KPL is. Um because they clearly are comfortable with him. Um, that has stood out uh, without question over the last couple of months. What are you hearing about Reuben Foster, who came off the pup list this week? Well, interestingly enough, we're going to actually hear from Reuben Foster today. Last I saw, he's on the list to speak with, with the media on the Zoom call today, which I was honestly kind of surprised by. I mean, they have kept him under the wraps for two years. We, we have never heard from him, and I know he's only now just getting off the, the, the pup list, but I, I'm sort of surprised that they were making him available this fast. You know, we still haven't talked to you know, 95% of the team, so I'm very interested in that. Um, look, I mean, I think he's, I, I, you know, so far, we, you know, we're only hearing a little bit um, about what's going on. They, they're not, you know, they only just put on pad, uh, put on a helmet yesterday. They haven't put on pads. So I haven't heard a, a ton, but, you know, the, the, what the coaches are saying is, you know, they're, they're pretty optimistic. He's His head's in the game, that he's you know, been focused from the mental side of things and that physically, um, you know, I don't think they're wanting to put out any real type of, like, over-the-top expectations, but I think they're, you know, hopeful. I, I, I think we're maybe it would be overly optimistic to say the speed he displayed as a rookie is there, but that's not to say it can't get there. I honestly just don't really know quite yet. I'm not sure really they know quite yet until things um, start to get going. I mean, one, one, somebody said to me, um, Knowing, you know, we were with the media going to start to get out there, was basically saying, you know, calm, calm down with like overstating 
how good somebody looks, one, until they even get pads on, and two, even then, just like, wait, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, maybe the receivers and the, and the defensive backs, you can get some sort of judgment, but the guys who are like near the line of scrimmage, you know, just wait a minute. Uh, but I'm fascinated to see, he's obviously hit, Reuben Foster and Bryce Love to me, you know, are probably the two most specific, interesting players to watch coming off of injuries, big stars in college. Um, you know, Foster obviously has extra controversy with him, but in terms of the football, you know, he actually can play at a level he was even close to with the Niners before before some of his uh, problems. I mean, that would be a massive upgrade for this linebacker, you know? Yeah, I, so I agree with you on Foster and Love. It's like the same kind of thing. Now, I, I was in love with, with Love uh, at Stanford, and I saw a guy that was, you know, maybe not Christian McCaffrey, but damn close as a college player. Um, he wasn't what you know Cooley described McCaffrey as. Cooley basically said McCaffrey would be a, a first-round wide receiver in that draft that he came out. In addition to being a first-round running back, you know, Love isn't necessarily that. But the Reuben Foster thing, you know, it, it's the same thing that I feel about uh, about Deron Payne. If you go back and you watch his tape from Bama, but really his rookie year in San Francisco, he is an outrageous talent. You know, I remember when they signed him, I was not fond of the move in the Me Too era and with the way they handled it. But I remember some of my friends saying, well, he's not that good anyway. I mean, he didn't didn't have any sacks, you know, in the first two seasons. I'm like, if you watch this guy play, he is a star. Like, he's a ridiculous talent. But... We just don't know, like with the Bryce Love thing, getting cleared you know, to play football, but whether or not you're really going to be back to where you were, we won't know that until we see him on the field. But it, it's intriguing to think, and hopefully, you know, especially if he's got his act together off the field. For sure. And, you know, obviously it's the nature of, of, uh, of, of my job that people ask questions along the lines of, so how good could they be this year? What do you think? And, you know, it's, I'm not trying to like hedge by any stretch because I don't. I like making predictions, or I like I'm I'm willing to sort of put stick my neck out there when I think I think something. But in this case, the level of uh, the amount of unknowns beyond the fact we haven't seen them do anything because of the because of the way the off season went, and we still haven't seen them anything. And even when we finally see them next week in pads, it still won't mean that much because they will only have just started this process. But it really are an insane amount of unknowns in some big spots. Like I said, on the entire offense, other than maybe Brandon Sheriff, you can't really point to anything. And by the way, he's coming off injury. You can't really point to almost anything and say feel pretty good about it, you know, confident-wise. I only had Terry McLaurin to that. But in terms of, like, usage or how things will go. And defense doesn't have as many things. But like I said, if Ruben Foster is anywhere close to what he was with San Francisco, he would be the best linebacker that they have most likely. And that would be a big deal because otherwise, you know, we'll see. I mean, again, KPL, I, you know, we'll, we'll see what he does. Call Holt, right. he's only going into a second year um, and so on. But, yeah, it's not a group that you're going, wow, this is a real strength. This is definitely a, a potential concern. So, and, so I, I think it's, it, it just adds to the confusion. And, by the way, if, if Ruben Foster can do some good things and he's now doing it behind this defensive line, which projects to be a really good, right. and that makes it even more interesting. So sticking with the defensive side of the ball, in all of these different Zoom calls and you talking with league people, who do you think they like in their secondary? Um, 
I'll start with corner. Who do you think they like at sure. corner? <clears throat> well, obviously they went out and you know signed Kendall Fuller to the contract they signed him to, and you know they you know most the front office are the people that also drafted him and so on. So I think it probably starts there. The versatility, the fact that he can play in a few different spots, and you know I, I think. Um, I, they haven't said this. I'm just sort of imagining the fact that, you know, he, he unlike other defensive backs that have been here in recent years, does, he doesn't come with the uh, sort of the diva <laughs> vibe. And, and I think that getting away from that is probably something that people are, are, are excited about. Uh, but, but I think Kendall Fuller versatility is, is, a, is, a, is a big deal. I honestly think from there, though, it's a big a lot of question marks again. Ronald Darby's been a good cornerback in this league, but he hasn't been able to stay healthy for the last three years. I think Fabian Moreau, he was somebody that I asked Del Rio about when I spoke to. I specifically asked about him with, um, with, with some league uh, sources. And, you know, because he really did step up. He, you know, he was much better when they moved him to the outside late in the year uh, versus when he was in the slot. If that player exists this year, uh, you know, it's conceivable he's the second cornerback opposite Fuller rather than, rather than Darby. So, I, I, but I, but at the same point, I really think this is a, a, another position that there's a bunch of question marks. I mean, Rivera has sort of hinted at it himself that they still don't quite know exactly what's going to to happen. And you know, this is where these training camps are going to be a huge deal. I mean, really, I mean, it's funny the receivers and the cornerbacks are going head to head. And other than say McLaurin and maybe Fuller, everything, everybody else who will be in those matchups is very much. It is important. It is very important for everybody involved to get a sense of what they have because I don't think people necessarily know for sure. Are they excited about Landon Collins, do you think? Uh, I, do, I do think that. I think, you know, this connects to, I'm sure we talked about this or you have before, you know, one of the upgrades that everybody believes is going to happen this year is with the coaching staff. That with Del Rio, with having the head coach who's on the defensive side of the ball and then just collectively, you know, having a staff you know, that is, I think, an upgrade over what was there last year, particularly on defense, I think will go a long way towards maximizing how to use some of these guys. Landon Collins was totally solid last year, but I don't think it was the full-blown impact that um, that was maybe expected. And I'm not saying that's necessarily on him. You know, all these things are connected to, to each other, and he was going through a lot last year, that secondary um, you know, with a lot of different moving uh, moving pieces and so on. Yeah, I think I think they're expecting a lot out of him, a guy who can make plays, you know, around the line of scrimmage, but also be a presence uh, on, on the back end. And look, he's an incredibly talented player. I saw some story um, somebody did. I don't know, maybe they on ESPN uh, did a story about players on each team who potentially could make the Hall of Fame someday, and uh, it mentioned. Landon Collins, which is not to say that he was going there, but based on the early part of his career, like it's something to sort of keep an eye on, I guess, because of what he's been able to achieve in pro balls and things like that. He and it's, I'm only mentioning that to say he is a highly thought of player. Uh, it just it, it did feel slightly underwhelming last year the impact, but I think that you know with everything that's going on up front and the coaching staff, I think people are expecting 
uh, a lot more from him. I really thought there were moments last year where I saw a star, um, especially in the box. And I know everybody, you know, sort of penciled him in as an in-the-box safety. And then I heard others, including my good friend Chris Cooley, talk about you know him being a little bit more versatile than maybe uh, most people thought. But when he was close to the line of scrimmage, I saw a very aggressive. Um, solid tackling player that could really um, make plays. Um, and then you put him into that mix behind everything else we've been talking about. And that's why I think this team is, you know, at least worth keeping an eye on if you're just an NFL fan is, you know, will Rivera and Del Rio coach this defense up to something um, that, uh, that, that, that takes, that, that essentially ends in a big leap statistically and maybe really impacts games. Um, all right. Uh, we'll save some of the offensive stuff for the next time we talk. I, I did want to get your thoughts on the wall street journal story and the earlier in the week stuff about Snyder and the discovery thing in the Alexandria court looking for, uh, and trying to identify who funded what he believes to be a misinformation campaign against him leading up to that post story, tying him to, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Epstein tying him to illegal sex trafficking and bribing referees, et cetera. Um, what did you think of the journal story? Where do you think this leads? Yeah, this is the fun stuff, right? Um, <laughs> this is the... Uh... The, 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 the juicy gossip stuff with a lot of uh, intrigue because obviously on some level, Dan Snyder, you know, I, this is, I mean, every time people, you know, the hashtag fire Bruce Allen and people were so adamant that he had to go and I'm always like, I hear you. The, the owner's not going anywhere. You get that, right? The owner, Bruce Allen, wasn't here the first 10 years when things were even messier. Well, maybe not since the last couple months, but the first 10 years were arguably messier than the last 10 years until recently. So uh, everything with Dan Snyder's ownership is, is fascinating, and and that includes this. Uh, so basically, I mean, y- you're probably even pet tracking this closer than I am, but basically the Wall Street Journal article talked about um, we already knew that these minority owners were looking to potentially get out and maybe see about getting Dan Snyder to sell to them, but now this is more about talking about uh, pressuring, possibly pressuring him to sell because if for them it would be um, – if nothing else, their shares of of their of the team would go up if they if they could sell it to somebody in total. And then when you factor in this whole lawsuit thing, in which part of the story involves a uh, a claim from the, from the Snyder side that a former that one of the minority owners may be involved in having a former uh, executive uh, assistant for Snyder helping to put out some of this uh, bad information or potentially bad information, whatever it is, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's bad information. I don't know uh, about about the, all those crazy rumors that were going on during around the time of the Washington Post story, and how that's all fairly fairly nuts. I, Kevin, I don't even know. I don't even know what to think. This this whole thing, it connecting to like everything that's kind of going on in society these days. It was just like sort of has my head blown as to I don't. It's hard to even know what 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 to believe, what's fact, what's fiction, and the fact that we now have this setting up to be this major soap opera. Uh, here, uh, I guess the most interesting thing to me on some level was sort of the lawsuit itself that Dan Snyder, uh, through his lawyer, really pushed, you know, really pushing this idea that th- that somebody was planning this information 
out there, and that it's he may, they may be tying it to one of these um, minority owners, minority owners sure. is yeah. really mind blowing. It's it's really, I mean, especially because like it's not like these guys just showed up yesterday. These minority owners have been around a long time, and how did we get from these guys have been around to supposedly they're planting information with an Indian internet company to um, to 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 put out these bad rumors about about Dan Snyder? It really is just unbelievable on so many levels. Ultimately, like I said, I, I sort of look past some of the fun to just get to the point, does any of this mean Dan Snyder selling the team anytime soon? I kind of come down to no. So I, in my own head, I kind of move on. But at the same point, this is so fascinating to see where this is going to go. Yeah, it really is. The whole thing, I mean, this is, um, it's funny because uh, I think as we get closer to a season, you know this and I know this because we communicate with a lot of the fans. There is that percentage of fans that will say, can we just focus on the goddamn football, please? We're a month away from the the opener against the Eagles. Uh, Why do we have to have all of this? Well, we 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 have to talk about all this because all of this is always out there. I mean, it's always something. And you know, it's a it's self-inflicted always. Um, it's not, you know, a, a figment of a media imagination. It's not, I don't believe, you know, a league, uh, uh, in, in, an intentional league-driven uh, attempt to get him out of there. Uh, this is always self-inflicted. He's made um, many more enemies than friends over the years. The people that have been associated with him usually get burned. Um, these three people were big boys when they invested. Fred Smith was a big boy when he put his name on the stadium, when he put his company's name on the stadium. Um, but like with a lot of uh, these relationships with him, they always go south. And they don't end up, uh, you know, well. And it's just like every head coach that's that's been hired, you know, leaves with reputation, you know, tarnished. And um, this one, though, more than any of the others in recent years, deals with what I believe to be, in in my opinion, you know, a a wish from many fans, past and present, and that is for a new owner. And this is a story that deals with ownership structure, with uh, minority owners trying to pressure him to sell, with a league that, you know, what we've heard really would prefer a different owner in D.C. So there's a lot of pressure on him now that we're hearing about for the first time to, to get rid of the team. Now, he may dig his heels in, and none of this stuff that's been out there, the Post story, is enough on its own to get a three-fourths vote by the other owners to force him out. Um, but it's, uh, it's a lot of smoke, man, a lot of smoke. And I, I, I would imagine I'd be very surprised. We still have a Beth Wilkinson investigation going on. That's going to produce something. Um, we, you know, typically when you see these stories with so many people stepping forward to accuse, of harassment, uh, you t- there are typically more to come. Um, I have no idea whether or not that's true, but it's it wouldn't be unusual. So I think there's a lot to come on this thing. You know, we're going to have a football season to follow, but when you have a potential minority owner funding a disinformation campaign against his partner and the majority owner after it's already been reported that you and the other two minority owners won out and want nothing to do with him. Um, it would, there, it's, 
It's salacious. Uh, it's, you know, for some people, it's like, let's focus on the football, but this is about the football. This is about the ownership of this franchise um, and whether or not it's it's a stable ownership or whether or not the ownership ultimately changes. I wouldn't bet on a change anytime soon, but I would bet on a future change. I don't, I don't know that I'd put a timeline on it. I would say maybe two, three years. I just think that he is he steps into it so much on his own that uh, that something else will happen, you know, at some point, and eventually it's not going to be worth it. And by the way, you know, with television deals coming up, with um, this market being so attractive uh, as a as an NFL market without him in it. He's going to be able to sell this franchise for for five billion plus. It will become, if it is sold, I believe the biggest sale of a North American sports franchise of all time. Not not to you know not to say that if the Cowboys were for sale or the uh, the Giants were for sale, or, you know that they wouldn't be bigger sales. But if it is sold, it would become the biggest of any in the history of North America. I think they, you know, with all that's out there to come with with new TV deals, etc. You know, the legalization of gambling in so many areas and what they what people think that's going to do to sports. Um, it would be um, it would be quite uh, quite a haul if they were to sell this team. For 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 sure, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking a couple things. Like one, like if if any of this is true, that one of the minority owners is behind or connected or is doing something to you know put some stuff out there to potentially hurt. Dan Snyder. Well, you know, you have to ask on some level. Well, if that is the case, what else are they willing to do? Um, you know, you always talk about the term. People know where the bodies are buried. I mean, obviously, these guys, based on their their status as minority owners who who are around, uh, you know, they clearly would know all kinds of things that have happened with this organization, whatever that would mean. And so, if they're willing to sort of play dirty, potentially, if any of this is accurate then you kind of have to wonder what else is happening. On the flip side, if it's not, and he's now openly accusing them of these things, well, the same sort of thing would apply. You wonder, like, wait, what? you're, you're saying I'm doing what? Well, okay, just to be clear, I know X, Y, Z, or who knows, or whatever. So, yeah, this whole thing, the fact that, I mean, I got the email from Snyder's attorney, like everybody else did in town, you know, saying, hey, we have this, you know, some stuff to discuss, whatever. And uh, I was, I was I had to read it twice to make sure I was like looking at this correctly. It's really just you know the fact that we've we've reached this point is pretty is pretty fascinating. And I think it would say to me, I, here's what I would just say. I know, like you said, some people are like, can't we just talk about football? I think I have never seen a a, 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 a um, I don't know what you would call this, but like a, a a a point that's more universal than this one. And that is for all organizations, whether you're talking sports or in the business world or government or whatever, everything starts at the top. It is so universally true, always, always, always. And so we can sit here and say this has nothing to do with whether the whether the football team is going to win on Sundays. Yeah, it does because the yeah, stability, the, st- the stability of an organization, how things are discussed. What do you think, Ron? Like I heard you discuss with Rivera, like how much you know could he believe that he has to deal with all this stuff? It's not going away. Do you think he wants to? He wants to keep talking about all these random things for the rest of time. He, if the owner's never going to talk, Rivera is the one who's going to keep answering questions. At some point, that's going to be like, okay, I've had enough. The players don't want to have to be dealing with these 
with these things. It's always in the air. Free agents are going to be like, uh, wait, what? Again, this place? I don't know. Like, whatever it may be, there, there are ripple effects constantly. It's just also the people in the building. It, it exists. You can't, it's in the air. It, it's undeniable. Again, not just there, any place that would have these issues. So, yeah, if this, if this, while Rivera seems like the right guy for the right, for the right moment in terms of what he brings as a coach, as a leader, as a person, this other stuff is, doesn't seem like it's going away, and ultimately that's why it's hard to view it as, at least for me, that change is really in the air for this, at this place. That's the, that's the overriding um, thing is that um, successful organizations have successful leaders, and it all starts at the top. You know, the fish rots from the head down, and this one has over 20 years. It's amazing what they've been able to accomplish um, in 20 years um, with essentially chasing one of the most passionate fan bases away um, or a significant percentage of it. And, um, you know, the problem, and I, Tommy and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast, is that, and you saw it in, in the reaction to the Post story, is that he doesn't seem to get it. You know, you always hope and you wish for people to evolve, for people to, you know, become more self-aware. For 21 years, what we've witnessed is an owner that never thinks it's his fault. Never. Um, And yet it starts at the top. And all the decisions to hire all these people over the years have ultimately rested with him. And when you got this post story and you didn't get A, an apology, and B, more importantly, a taking of responsibility, it was another indication that he still doesn't get it. He still can't look in the mirror and see the problem. Um, It's always someone else that has, you know, screwed this up on his behalf. Um, and that's just, that's the discouraging part. And I'm encouraged by Ron Rivera. I've talked about that a lot. I think he's a decent man. I think he's a good coach. And if he's given some autonomy here and the owner stays out of it, I think he's got a chance to have some success. But um, the owner at some point for this thing to have really a chance is going to have to admit that he's been the problem. And I just don't think at 55 years old he'll ever admit that. If you couldn't take responsibility um, for top-down toxic culture after that post story and you had your sales and marketing department send out a letter attaching the post story and saying, this is true, all that internet rampant speculation about Epstein is false, almost being like this over here, this post story, which isn't anything like the the internet rumors that were flying around, this is true. You know, you can believe this, uh, but not not the other stuff. The whole thing has been unseemly, indecent, for two decades, and I don't know that it'll ever change. Doesn't mean they can't have a good season or two every once in a while. That's what the league is designed for, even the worst of franchises, to occasionally hit an inside straight and have a winning season. But it's really hard with the ownership that this organization has had to to win consistently. And it won't as long as he's here, in my view. Um, but I'm still rooting yeah. for Ron, and I, and I still think that they've got some pretty good defensive players we'll find out anyway yeah absolutely there's, uh, there's definitely some intrigue I, i'll just say like you know, we've all talked to all kinds of people uh you know this calendar year about this team and i, I one, one article i was proud of a couple weeks ago was sort of the idea of ron rivera has a lot of juice but dan snyder 
it's ultimately still his show and, and sort of the kicker quote in there with somebody saying that, you know, basically Rivera can say whatever he wants about how he and Mr. Snyder get along, but that the reality is he actually hasn't met the real Dan Snyder yet. That's and then right. they take time, and when it happens, we'll see what he thinks. Yeah, I think he could probably talk to Dwight Shar and Fred Smith about what the real Dan Snyder is, because maybe <laughs> maybe early on they were enamored with him as well. Anyway, um, thanks. Read Ben on The Athletic. Again, discounted opportunity right now. Take advantage of that. It's totally worthwhile. And, of course, you can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Standig. Um, We'll catch up either next week or the week after. I appreciate this. Hopefully by then I'll see you in practice. Thank you, sir. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Ben. Caps and Islanders tonight at 8 o'clock. I mean, by the time you listen to the podcast, the game might be underway or it might be over, but one of my favorite hockey guests, whether it's on the radio show or on the podcast, is Greg Wyshynski, the senior NHL writer at ESPN. Um, And, you know, uh, we haven't talked before this postseason started, started, and I always like your, you know, uh, pre-playoff predictions as it relates to the Caps and overall. Before game one the other day, where did you have them? Did you, were you bullish on them going into the postseason or not? I I thought, I thought they would win the series. Um, You know, I always found it interesting that there was so much attention paid to uh, the Barry Trotz revenge on the Capitals uh, kind of storyline that they people didn't quite understand that there's a number of people on the Capitals that won a Stanley Cup with Barry Trotz that would like nothing more than to beat him in a series as well. Sure, so it's a two-way street. Um, so I thought the Capitals had a real a real shot in the series. Uh, I know the Islanders play a, a defensive style that makes it difficult for the Caps to do some of the things they do best. And uh, now that the Islanders had a round of sort of proof of concept against the Panthers, they're clearly locked in and playing really well. Um, but I just thought the Caps would be uh, able to finagle a couple wins and hope he would maybe play a little bit better than he did in game one. Um, so we'll see. I mean, the, the Islanders are going to be a very tough out, <clears throat> but I wouldn't cut out the, uh, the Capitals quite yet. Back to game one before we look forward. Did you think the Anders Lee hit on Backstrom deserved punishment? Maybe in game. I mean, I, I just think it's it's just a hard hit, um, you know, interference, uh, it, it, very close at least to it. Uh, I don't think it was head hunting. I don't think it was predatory. I think those are the, the kinds of things that Todd Rudin has to say, in the hopes that maybe the, one of the best goal scorers on the other side gets a suspension in the series. But I had no problem with it being uh, supplemental. No, they're not being supplemental discipline. It's. It's an injurious game, and, and sometimes borderline hits produce injuries, and it, it sucks because it's Nicky, and, uh, and he's pretty important to the team. Um, but, uh, but in that case, I, I don't think that it necessarily rose to the level of, of supplemental discipline. How much of the loss, uh, the blame for the loss, do you put on Holtby? He wasn't good, um, and um, that's sort of a, a disappointing thing because I think as Braden's numbers overall have sort of trended down in the last couple of seasons, I think that one thing he's you know, been able to rely on is the fact that he has been traditionally one of the better goalies in the postseason. So to see him have kind of a soft game and, and to know that uh, he's kind of playing without a net considering the injury situation with the goaltenders um, is, a, is a little disappointing. But, you know, I think his team in front of him could, have, could also have bailed him out a little bit more um, insofar as, you know, carrying the play, 
doing some of the things that when the Caps are playing well, they do best, um, and then not having that happen against an Islanders team. But again, you know, I, I think that there's so many dynamics at play uh, in this tournament, be it the you know, no fans thing, be it the no travel thing, but it's also a game one after the Islanders complete a, uh, an elimination series against the Panthers and the Capitals kind of sleepwalk through a, a round-robin tournament that uh, a lot of teams that were in certainly haven't necessarily answered the bell after finishing them. So what was the most disappointing thing in terms of perhaps uh, a harbinger of things to come from game one and then looking forward uh, to, to the next game in the rest of the series? Was there something that stood out that was alarming if, you're, if, you, if you think the Caps, you're rooting for them or you think they should win this series? I, well, I don't think it's a harbinger of things to come, but I was really sort of stunned by their compete level in the first game. And again, that could just be a, a symptom of having to try to find a new gear all of a sudden. There, and, did you and say their the compete level? I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, their compete level. Yep. I mean, I think if you watch that game, it was T.J. Oshie playing at a T.J. Oshie level and then a couple of other guys, and then the rest of the roster seemed like they were in a different gear. And and so, you know, we've seen that with some of these teams coming out of the round robin. I mean, the Dallas Stars are a good example where, you know, they drop uh, game one against Calgary, and you can see they're kind of sleepwalking through the thing. The St. Louis Blues dropped game one to Vancouver, and, and they looked like they were in a different gear than, than the, the music that uh, and the tempo that the Canucks were playing at. So we've seen some really good teams that were in that exhibition tournament not necessarily be able to you know, ratchet it up when they get into the uh, quarterfinals. So I, I hesitate to say that it's a trend, but I mean, again, like, not to overpraise the game that Oshie had in game one, but he was the only guy that was really evident, you know, and was like present and, and going to the net and trying to score the goals that you're going to have to try to score against this Islanders defense. And uh, they're going to need a lot more of that. And, and, and look, you know, they're getting a guy back in game two. They're losing Baxter, but they're getting a guy back in game two and Lars Eller that during the cup run and, and traditionally is the type of player that can bring that energy and that can go to the net and that can do the things you need to do against the tight defensive team. So I think that, 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 uh, that he is going to be an asset now that he's back in the lineup, but they're going to need more of that type of effort because he can't play to the margins against the Islanders' defense. It's too good. A Barry Trotz team is too good. You've got to be able to get in there, score dirty goals, and certainly capitalize on the, on the power play opportunities that you're given. So a couple of interesting things off of what you just said. Um, number one is this, and I think I talked to Tark El-Bashir on the radio about this the other day. It may have been Beninati, I forget. But I said that, you know, this is the first time, you know, I think, in the NHL playoffs where you're going to have teams that were playing playoff games come into a playoff series against higher-seeded teams that had sort of potentially been going through the motions. We get that in the NFL. You know, the wild-card teams play that first weekend, and then the top two seeds are awaiting them in the divisional round. You get that in the NCAA tournament, uh, Greg, because you'll get uh, teams that, that now play in the first four, and I'm not talking about the 16 seeds, but the you know the bigger schools in the 11-versus-11 11 11 game to advance to the next round, and they seem to thrive uh, at least early. Now, it's a one-and-done in the NFL in, the, in March Madness, and this is a best-of-seven, so they're not comparable, but there is typically this 
uh, advantage that the team that's been playing the pressure-packed games has, and it seems like you feel that that is w- where the Islanders, you know, were ready for this kind of playoff uh, intensity, and the Capitals weren't. Yeah, and, and I think that you see it in other series too. I mean, the Blue Jackets come off a five-game series against the Leafs that is uh, clearly an intense uh, five-game series, and then they hit the ground running and, and play. Uh, the Lightning to five overtimes and then beat him in the next game. Uh, but I, I, I push back a little bit that this is something, I mean, it is something we've never seen before, obviously, where teams have never played a, you know, a, a, full, a full playoff series while a team that they're about to play is kind of noodling through a, an exhibition round. But it is something that we see every year in the NHL because of the way that the playoff structure is set up, where you have teams that for maybe two or three weeks are playing at a playoff intensity in order to try to make the playoffs on the bubble. Right. And then you have a, a number one seed that's kind of just lollygagging around, getting ready for, for you know the next phase of the season. And that's one of the reasons why, along with hot goalies and just the randomness of hockey, that you end up seeing so many upsets in the first round, is you have these teams that are you know clearly locked in and playing a certain style of hockey that are now taking on teams that are, are sort of flat-footed. And, and you know, the greatest example to go back to the Jackets and the Lightning was last season with the, with the sweep in the first round with Columbus where, you know, to a man, the Lightning were like, you know, we had 130 points. Right. We didn't have anything to play for for two months. And then the, the Blue Jackets come in and blow the doors off them because they've been playing playoff games every day for two weeks. So it is a phenomenon that we do see in the regular season at times. We've just not seen it as as, uh, as uniquely set up as this to uh, to play out. That's fair, but I also love when a hockey guy – will include the randomness of the sport because there is a randomness <laughs> to this sport that may not exist uh, in, in others because of the nature of the game and played on ice with skates, with a puck that deflects in odd ways all over the place. I mean, that first Oshie goal was, I mean, Varlamov had no idea what side of the net it was after the carom off, you know, a skate and off the, the board that went perfectly to Oshie with an open net. It, it, it's, it's always interesting and by the way I think it makes it exciting um but you know you you also um talked a little bit about their lack of intensity it's funny because I actually thought they the, the intensity of the game was really evident like it felt like a playoff game to me watching it it was intense there were there was a chippiness to it um and even without the fans there I actually think this sport in the you know, in the sports restart of the major sports has been the easiest to consume in the most, like, similar to what we used to get. How have you viewed what we've been watching for a few weeks and now over the last couple of days with straight playoff games? Do you feel the intensity as if it's a playoff game in May or June? Uh, It's different. I mean, you know, as much as they – there's two different ways to answer that question. The first is that from the the fan or, or viewer perspective, and the, the example I've been giving is that this is sort of the uh, Beyond Meat burger of, uh, of hockey, right. where they, they get the look of it and they get the taste of it, and, uh, and it could trick your brain into thinking that you're eating red meat, but you're not eating red meat at the end of the day if you want a, a, a cheeseburger. I mean, it's only going to go so far, right? So, um, but they've done everything that they can to kind of trick our brains into thinking it's, it's playoff hockey. And in some cases, the games have certainly lived up to the, 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 the moniker of, of it being a Stanley Cup playoff game. So I think from a viewer's perspective, it's been really fun, and there have been some amazing games to watch. 
the players' perspective has been very interesting. Um, coming into the bubbles, a lot of the guys said, we understand it's not going to be the same level of intensity because the fans aren't there. The fans and the, the atmosphere of playoff games is something that you can't replicate. And they all talked about the, nece- the necessity to kind of self-motivate and figure out how to kick into that next gear without those aesthetics. Now what you're hearing, at least from Tukarazka, the Boston Bruins, after their game against Carolina this week, is some of the players saying, all right, well, the, it's not like we even thought it was going to be. It's, it's, you know, he, he called it dull. He called it an exhibition game. Um, I'm, I don't know if he's speaking out of turn or if he's, he's speaking for a silent uh, majority or what, um, but it's clear that in some cases um, players are still struggling with ratcheting it, ratcheting it up that intensity that they, that they find when playing in front of fans. Um, inside of the empty arenas, even as you know there's something on the line, even as they pump in music and crowd noise into the arena, um, it's just it's just hard to replicate it. I think. But from from a viewing standpoint, I mean, it, I think I, I've watched every sport that's restarted this summer, and I don't think any of them hold a candle to how good hockey looks on TV. I agree with you. So you know, what is the most effective part of that trick? You know, uh, fooling us from. Uh, to believing that it's actually red meat, not beyond meat. What do you think that has been the key to, to the trick? Well, it's two things. It's it's first understanding the sort of symphonic aspect of, of playoff hockey. Um, I, I did a story this week for ESPN.com. You can check it out on the website where I talked to the guy who presses the uh, crowd reaction buttons in Edmonton mm-hmm. and, and also talked to EA Sports about how they developed all the sounds for the game. Um, because they they have a library of different cheers and reactions that these guys are using and to create the sound that we hear on television and now what the players are now hearing in the arena as well. And it's a fascinating process, and I think that they, they really did a great job in understanding the, one, the soundscape that exists in hockey to begin with, the, you know, skates on the ice and the puck and the sticks and the boards, the whole thing, recreating the murmur of the crowd that you normally hear when you watch a hockey game and then, and then you know, amping it up and allowing these guys to add and sweeten the sound with cheering and, and, uh, and other reactions. I think the soundscape of hockey is, is perfectly, almost perfectly recreated on, on television, although you miss the spontaneity of, of chants and you certainly miss the, uh, the booing. Uh, you don't get it all on these broadcasts, for, and, and that's an editorial choice. Um, but the other reason I think that it worked was it that, is an editorial choice. They, they. Oh yeah, it, yeah. They, they, the, the. I wrote about this in the story. The philosophy of of presenting these games on television was that they were going to be neutral sight games, got it, uh, and, and treated as such. So you're going to you're actually going to hear both goal songs when teams score. You're going to hear cheering uh, in, in some ways for both teams. You know, there might be a little bit more of a home home team advantage in some of the reactions, but for the most part, it's very neutral sight. In fact, the NHL has told me that the only time you might hear booing is when Bettman brings the cup out. They might continue that tradition <laughs> and, uh, and hit him with some boos. And, I hope he has a sense of humor about it. He will, oh, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but apparently he's got a sense of humor about it. But I was going to say, the other thing that they did really well was um, they acknowledged the fact that this was these are games inside of empty arenas. And, and while they wanted to make it sound and look like hockey as best they could, they also didn't want to make it feel like you're watching a game in a cavernous, empty building. So putting the tarps over the seats, um, you know, kind of creating it almost like you, ha- you stuck a hockey rink inside of a TV studio 
where you've got these video screens and these lighting rigs, and, and they, they worked with local theater companies in Toronto and Edmonton to create these stages around the, the rink. Um, they did a really smart, smart uh, job kind of deciding that, you know, we're going to present the sport, it's going to look like hockey, we're going to have it on a rink, but everything else around it is going to almost feel like you entered, like, the American Gladiator Arena. Like, it's a made-for-TV event, and I think that's, you know, the dude's name is Steve Mayer. He's the content officer for the NHL. He's also the guy that does all the accoutrement that you see around the rinks at the Winter Classic and stuff. Right. So, you know, the fake planes and stuff like that. Really smart guy, and I think that he deserves multitudes of accolades for the way that this thing looks and sounds on television. I uh, That's interesting, and, and it makes sense based on what I've watched. I, I also believe, and I can't be specific about what it is, but even going back to live crowds and 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 true um you know road and home games there's something about NBC's coverage whether it's NBC or NBC Sports Network of of this league and this league's postseason that is just really first rate comparable you know to the other sports i just think it's it's incredibly well done well i mean your your mileage on them varies depending on how much you like some of the voices that call the games <laughs> you know, I, uh, I think I think anybody who's been on social media during a Mike Milbury or Pierre Maguire sure. game understands that there's a certain distracting aspect uh, from from the coverage at times. But I think from an aesthetic point of view, look, we're, we're none of us who uh, who you know broadcast these games, be it NBC or or, or anybody else in the future, um, we're we're all kind of playing catch up to the way that Canada presents the games from a from a, a, a an aesthetic point of view, of camera work and editing and everything like that. The games on Canadian television are, are, uh, are, are top-notch productions. And, you know, I think, I think NBC does a really good job in um, – it, it has always done a really good job in, in, in camera work and capturing moments and things like that. Uh, I think in the case of both uh, Sportsnet and NBC, you know, they've had the advantage of being able to add 12 new cameras in each arena. Uh, including one uh, that's that JIT cam that, that kind of flies over the ice. And right. Like, uh, you're looking at a video game. And uh, <laughs> I was talking to somebody. They've actually, like, placed that right where, like, the best seats in the house would be. And, you know, if fans were there, they wouldn't have had that opportunity. So um, I think some of the the real triumphs in the way that the games have been presented has been because of the fact that these games are in empty arenas and they've been able to really – utilize the extra cameras they've had um, to, to make it work. Uh, we're talking to Greg Wyshynski. He is the senior NHL writer at ESPN. All right, um, back to the hockey. What do you think we'll see in game two tonight, and what's your prediction in, uh, about what we'll see the rest of the series? Well, um, you know, we've, we've seen this before where the, the Caps have all of a sudden been without Backstrom, and, you know, it's hard not to think about uh, the cup run whenever you talk about the Caps in the playoffs now, considering how many uh, carryovers there are from that team. And, you know, it, they won three or four games without Backstrom during that run and, and had guys step up and, and had, you know, players, you know, thriving in different roles. And, and so, I, you know, this is the type of moment that really tests the mettle of a team on, you know, who in the lineup can step up to really uh, create a difference when you're missing one of your big offensive players. And, so that's, that's one level of intrigue, and I'm confident that the Capitals will respond in kind to not having Nicky there uh, because they have before. And then the, the, real, the real question is their bounce-back ability, and, and I think the, the biggest part of that is Braden Holtby, who 
again, you know, has acquitted himself to be one of the better postseason goalies maybe of the last decade, uh, if you go by the numbers. And it has to play like it in game two because across the ice, they're not giving up much. You know, the, the margins on this series are going to be pretty thin when it comes to goals scored because that's the way the Islanders want to play. Not to say they aren't a talented team. I mean, I think that in the case of teams like Dallas and, and, um, and the Islanders and Columbus, you know, three teams that try to play a, a defensive style and smother you and, and not necessarily are always pushing up the ice, um, I throw Arizona in there as well. I think all those teams kind of trick you into believing they don't have elite offensive talent. In the case of the Islanders, I think they do in, in, in some places. So, um, but, but they're not going to give you much. So the, the, the answer is, the short answer is, <laughs> hope that Holtby is better and hope that uh, the centers that move up the depth chart with Nick, with Nick Backstrom out uh, perform in kind like the ones that did two years ago did. Uh, last one, and I'll let you run. Um, Boston obviously appeared to be, um, before the shutdown, um, head and shoulders uh, above everybody else, certainly in the Eastern Conference. They end up as the fourth seed. They're in a tight series with Carolina, 1-1 through two games. Tampa Bay was obviously um, starting to play better. Philly was really starting to get on on a roll there. They, they've, they've sort of continued it. Who do you like in the East? Um, who's impressed you, and then uh, the West uh, as well. Just give me give me a couple teams that you really think are going to be tough to knock out. Well, the Flyers really have sort of found themselves, uh, you know, using the round robin to do so, securing the first seed overall in the East, and and looking really good. I mean, they 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 are put a well put together team. Um, they've got a couple of lines that can scare you. Uh, they've got a good young defense, uh, and, and you know Provorov is a guy who I think is starting to really blossom. Um, and they have Carter Hart and Goal, who is uh, you know it's funny that it's funny that they're playing Montreal right now because I think he is going to be the one to inher- inherit the mantle from uh, from Carey Price as the next great Canadian goalie. Um, so they're they're really good. So that that would be my team from the round robin that I have my eyes on. But the team from the qualification round of the East. And, and they're right back in the series now, is Carolina. Car- Carolina is a really fun team to watch, a really fun team to cover uh, because of, of their coach, Rod Brindamore, and some of the personalities that they have on that team. Their goaltending, I think, scares me still a little bit with Morazic and Reimer, but the fact is, is that they've, they've now found themselves a top-line, or at least a top-line player in uh, Svechnikov, who is uh, a difference-maker. And, and that's the big key this year versus last year and playing a team like Boston. That Sveshnikov leveled up during the regular season this year and, uh, and is an offensive force that they just simply didn't have on the roster last time they tangled with Boston. So they're, they're a team that I'm really excited to see exactly how far they can go. And then quickly in the West, Vegas is a juggernaut. <laughs> they are really good. Um, you know, Chicago gave, gave, uh, you know, gave us all a thrill with the upset over Edmonton, but now they are facing the antithesis of Edmonton, which is a deep team with four lines, a team that plays extraordinarily good defense, and a team that uh, can get quality goaltending um, from either Robin Lehner or, or Marc-Andre Fleury, but Lehner at the moment has the crease. Vegas is, uh, I think, shaping up to be a pretty heavy favorite in the Western Conference, with the caveat that the uh, uh, Colorado Avalanche are probably number two, and with the caveat that if they continue to play as they did in Game 1, the Vancouver Canucks could be a real Cinderella team out of the West with the uh, exciting young talent that they have in their core. 
that Columbus Tampa game to 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 start was incredible, and that, I thought that series going in, but you know, because of what happened last year with Tampa Bay being the number one overall and getting swept by the Blue Jackets, um, that that was going to be intense. Uh, and you just reminded me, right, Boston Carolina, that was the Eastern Conference Final last year. Um, it certainly was, yeah. After Carolina knocked off the Caps in, in that uh, double overtime game seven um, on their way to that. Um, it's exciting to watch. I'm with you. I think I think by far and away, the sports, the, in terms of the pro sports that have returned, this one's felt like the closest thing to the real thing. Um I'm a golf guy, so the golf's actually been pretty good too. Uh, but you see a lot of golf tournaments without fans lining certain fairways with certain golfers, so it doesn't look that unusual. But I, th- I think whatever they've done, they've gotten most of this right, and you know we're in for a fun you know next month and a half or however long it takes. Yep, absolutely. It's it's going to be cool. Um, I'm uh, I'm I'm excited that hockey's back. I think uh, they deserve a lot of accolades for coming up with a way to create a unique tournament that I think fans have been into. Um, and I think that they deserve, they deserve obviously even more accolades for coming up with a way to bring the sport back in the two, to the two hub cities that so far have produced no positive COVID-19 exactly. tests through the first couple of weeks, which is, you know, our greatest fear in this whole thing is that we get to a certain point and all of a sudden, you know, the bubble starts to burst and, um, I, I think it's a combination of them being really smart and listening to the right people, the, you know, the doctors and medical experts telling them how to do this the right way. And I think it's also a tribute to the players who, even during phase three, the, um, uh, the, the, the training camp phase where they were able to go to the rink and then go home, they all took this very seriously. And they all have that kind of attitude of, like, I don't want to screw this up for the guy next to me. And uh, and go to the club <laughs> or yeah. something that night. So I, I think it's a tribute to everybody involved that it's gone off as as smoothly as as it has. As I, as I wrote on ESPN.com the other day, the, the most remarkable thing about restarting this season in uh, in a COVID nineteen pandemic is how much we haven't talked about COVID nineteen, which I think is a really good place for the NHL to be right now. You know, I lied. I've, I've got one more for you because you just you, you sparked a thought on, on a conversation that I had the other day with Tarek El-Bashir, and it was this. Um, and I this is something I learned, and I'm, I'm assuming that you're very familiar with, that hockey economically really relies on live gate, live attendance. They're, they don't have that right now. If they can't have that um, in the upcoming 2021 season, 2020-2021 season, that there's the possibility that there won't be a season. A, do you agree with that? And then B, how devastating could that be to certain franchises moving forward in terms of viability? Um, I, I do agree with it. Uh, I don't think they are going to come back and play a full 82-game season or even you know a 70-game season if they can't have some semblance of fans in the building. Um, I, you know, I think that that is essential for you know things like travel and, and aspects of that that cost a lot of money. Is you got to have some of those costs covered at some point. Um, and they are the most gate-reliant league in in, in sports. Um, I think their wager in setting up December 1st as a, as a return to play date for the next season with the caveat that could, it, it could be a delayed a month is their hope that, you know, there's more progress made on treatments and potential vaccines for COVID, but also their hope that other leagues will have had fans back at their games by that point. Now, we don't know if that's going to be the case or not. You have more and more, uh, you know, teams saying no fans. You have more and more sports delaying until the spring. So, We'll see what happens on that, but 
you know, behind the scenes, all these teams do have task for task force and, and, and all kinds of people modeling and game. This goes back to, I mean, I did a story on this in, in like uh, March <laughs> or April on, on the San Jose Sharks already modeling what their revenues would look like based on how many fans they could let into the building. So every team right now is, is in the process of figuring out what to do for next year. Um, but it's ultimately going to come down to what the NHL decides to do for next year. And, and behind the scenes, there is a lot of skepticism about playing 82 games. Um, but I, there isn't uh, a lot of skepticism about them playing another season. Uh, you know, so hopefully it works out. But I'll, but I'll say that it is sort of uh, one of those things that you have to keep an eye on. And I think you have to definitely keep an eye on other sports in this in this case to see what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always enjoy t- uh, catching up with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Stay well. Stay healthy, and uh, hopefully we can talk down the road if, if the Caps keep uh, moving forward, or even if they don't. Um, it's always good to catch up with you in hockey. Yeah. Thanks, Greg, so much. Anytime, man. Thanks. Greg Wyshynski, uh, everybody, senior NHL writer at ESPN, at Wyshynski, W-Y-S-H-Y-N-S-K-I on Twitter. He's always been one of my favorite guests. It's very interesting. Um, I think we've talked about this before, maybe with Tommy, maybe with somebody else. A lot of the hockey guys are phenomenal radio guests. They they have always been some of my favorites, and it's not my favorite sport, but Wyshynski's always been great. Joe Beninati's always been one of my favorites. Craig Lachlan's phenomenal um, as a hockey analyst. Um, guys that cover the team, like Brian McNally and others, have been great. Tark Elbashir, phenomenal on hockey. I know I'm forgetting some people here, but um, some of our hockey conversations on radio and on the podcast over the years have actually been my favorite, even though of the four major sports, it's my least favorite. Although I really do like playoff hockey. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it, it's, it's felt like playoff hockey watching it on TV anyway. Um, here over the last few nights. All right, uh, that's it for the day. Um, want to remind everybody about Window Nation. Uh, great opportunity to get Windows 86690 Nation. WindowNation.com. Mention me, free estimate, no risk, and you're going to get 50% off with deferred payments for two years. All right, have a great weekend. I am on vacation, yes, uh, again, next week. Um, we've got to get in all that vacation time before football season starts. If anything happens uh, significant, I'll be in to do a show or two. Um, and I may be in to do a show or two with Tommy anyway. Um, so I'll keep you posted on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan DC, uh, as to when we'll have a show. I'm guessing right now, no show on Monday, unless there are big events from over the weekend. So stay, uh, stay well, stay safe, enjoy the weekend, and we will talk soon.